Hey, my name is J.D. Larson, one of the pastors at North City Church. Thanks for joining us on our podcast. I hope this inspires and equips you to love God more deeply and to love your neighbor as yourself. At North City, our mission is to love our neighbors in the way of Jesus, and we hope this message emboldens you to do just that in whatever space God has sent you to. Be sure to subscribe and keep in touch with the conversations North City is having. And if you want to find out more about our community, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or online at northcitychurchmpls.com. Enjoy the message. Well, welcome. Uh, welcome to North City Church. If this is your first time or if it's your 10th time or, you know, it's under 100 for all of us. So, <laughs> Welcome. Uh, I'm JD, um, one of the pastors here, married to Christian Ann. Uh, we co-lead pastor this church together, so you get two for the price of one, quite literally. Um, uh, but we're, we're overjoyed to be your pastors. We're super excited about what 2020 will bring. Uh, I, I highly encourage you to come next week and be a part of uh, that conversation. We've been listening for couple weeks now as a community for what God is asking us to focus on in 2020. So come and, and listen and engage in that conversation. That'll be, that'll be really good. Uh, I want to start this morning because we're starting a new series, but we're kind of continuing uh, something we've started at the beginning of the year. So this year, you may have noticed through our communications, we're encouraging people to join us in reading through the New Testament and our sermons kind of loosely follow that reading plan. If you're interested in doing that or you want to ask more questions about it, uh, there's a resource page uh, that we can get you a link to. If you're not getting our weekly emails, some of the updates are in there as well. So you can jot down on your contact card and just ask New Testament in the year and we'll get you the resources you need. Uh, If that's something that interests you, no obligation whatsoever. We're not going to come check your scorecard out or something like that. This is just uh, something that we're all going to try to do together and thought would be a great way uh, to shape our conversations in 2020. So we're launching into a, a different conversation because we're starting the book of Mark uh, today. And this new conversation is called Lenses. And uh, so the reason we're calling the conversations around Mark and Luke as lenses is part of what we want to explore is that uh, how we see the world shapes who we become. How we see the world shapes who we're becoming and shapes the way we see others around us. And we think Jesus, part of what he's doing is challenging the way that we see the world, challenging the way that we see ourselves. So the sort of meta question we want to ask this month as we explore parts of Mark and Luke is, uh, is how does Jesus's story or Jesus's story maybe will help us assess how we see ourselves and how we see the world. So we're going to take little components from, or little themes from each of these books and say, hey, this is, this is a way that Jesus wanted you to see your life in the world differently. What would it look like if you really saw yourself that way or saw your neighbors that way? So that, that's what we're doing. And when I uh, thought about this theme of lenses, I immediately thought of like every once in a while getting those emails or seeing those posts about pictures that are not what they appear right away. You ever, you ever seen those images? And so I was browsing some of those, most of which were inappropriate to share on a screen on Sunday, unfortunately. But there was one that really like stuck out to me as a father, and I brought it along with me. Steve, can you put that picture up? Immediately, it's like, why are you throwing this infant off a building? But actually, it's just a train model set, so, so nothing to get freaked out about. It was a good two seconds where I'm like, why, why is this happening? Why is this on the internet? But he's just getting a closer look there, so... 
there's really no point to that picture, sorry about that, other than to just demonstrate the way we see things initially may be different than how they actually are. And what I want to invite you into uh, this next month is to, uh, as we're talking about these things that were so uh, close to Jesus' heart that he was passionate about, that he was trying to change people's perspective on, what, how could this in a fresh way uh, change your perspective on how you're seeing things, how you're seeing God, how you're seeing the people around you? So let's pray, and then I have the fun task of preaching the book of Mark in, in one day. <laughs> so I'm not going to preach the, through the whole thing. Don't, don't, get, uh, don't head for the exit. Let's pray and welcome God into the theme uh, of Mark we want to draw out this morning. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the most important thing about this morning is your presence here with us. God, I've, I've thought of some things, I've read some scripture, I've got some words and ideas to share, but we, we ask most of all that you would meet us in this place where we're gathered. You say where two or more are gathered, God, you're with us. God, I pray that we would encounter your grace this morning in, in the midst of your presence. I, would, I pray that people would encounter uh, the still small voice of, of your loving kindness towards us this morning. God, I pray that we would experience your forgiveness this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, since I said I'm going to burden myself with the task of preaching through one book of the Bible this morning, let me give you the quick facts of Mark, and then we're going we're gonna to actually take a little bit of the journey to trace a theme of something that I think Jesus wants uh, the people around him to see and us to see. So quick facts about the book of Mark. This is the first gospel written. This is the first book of the New Testament, we think, probably, that's written. And John Mark, who scholars think is the author of this book, is someone who's a close friend of both Paul and Peter, and Peter in particular. And if you remember those names, they're apostles. Uh, Paul, who had this dramatic encounter with the presence of Jesus later in his life, and Peter, who is one of Jesus' closest disciples. So we think that this book is written about the time when people are starting to think, man, we ought to really write some of these stories down for future generations. It, is, it had been a very uh, oratory learning movement up until this point, and John Mark, a smart guy, and had been around these stories and maybe even lived and experienced some of them, said, I'm going to do careful work of trying to write down the story of this person, of Jesus. And we think that uh, we've got four what are called gospels uh, in our text, and we think uh, that Mark being the, the first one, uh, the people who wrote the other gospels probably had a copy of Mark's letter gospel right in front of them while they were compiling their account and story of Jesus. So we'll find that this is a short, blunt uh, uh, book and the rest of the Gospels kind of in some way expound upon these stories. They have similar stories. They have different stories as well that Mark doesn't capture. But this is kind of like the origin of the Gospel stories, uh, if you will. And so we're going to explore this one. And I thought I'd explore uh, this in a way. Uh, I uh, grew up watching movies. I love movies and have a particular affection for movies in the late 90s and early 2000s for some reason. And I don't know if you were a movie watcher back then. Maybe you, you know, weren't even alive back then. But um, <laughs> if you were a movie watcher back then, you noticed some of these big movies that actually started the movie with the ending of the story. So you can think of Fight Club. But like a lot of Tom Hanks movies for some reason. So Saving Private Ryan starts with the scene of Private Ryan walking through the graveyard of his fallen comrades. 
uh, even Forrest Gump starts with someone on a uh, bench with a box of chocolates, right? It starts at the end. So I thought in the spirit of the movies of the late 90s and 2000s, we would start with the end of Mark's gospel. So if you want to turn with me, there's just two verses I want to read at the end, and then I want to, I want to point something out to you that a reader of this gospel might miss, that maybe we've missed uh, as a crucial part of the story and something that is a theme of Jesus's presence uh, with us. So if you look, uh, it'll be on the screen as well. This is chapter 15. We'll start at the end of the story. We'll go back to the beginning and work our way through. This is uh, verse 37 and 38 of Luke's gospel. Now, this is Jesus on the cross. This is the climax of the story. This is the um, close to the end of the story. This is what everything is sort of headed towards. And here's the moment. It says, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. You can imagine seeing like a flash forward in the movie of the last part of the scene of the movie. And then it says, the curtains of the temple were torn in two from top to bottom. It's sort of an odd little fact in the midst of this story. Like, this temple, he was in Jerusalem, or just outside of Jerusalem. What is the deal with the temple uh, veil being torn? That's the question that I want, if you were watching this movie, be like, I better find out the answer to that question by the end of this movie, or I'm going to be an irritated moviegoer. <laughs> Why was the temple destroyed in some sense, or why was this veil torn from top to bottom, the curtain? Okay, so let's jump back to the beginning. Mark 1, where Mark is, is going to say, hey, this is what this book is about. Let's read it. It says, in the beginning was the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. So just the first sentence there tells you what he's going to tell you. Mark is like, this is what this story is about. And we've probably heard those phrases over and over again, so they kind of fly right over our heads. First, the gospel. We use the gospel in a lot of different ways. But what does Mark, back in the first century, mean when he says, you're about to hear a gospel? And the gospel and what he's trying to communicate, this term is taken from the Roman Empire when there's a proclamation of good news about what the Roman Empire has done or is going to do. And it usually has to do with a change in power or a change, or a new leader coming. So this good news isn't like, uh, you know, the good news section in your newspaper or something like that, or it isn't like, dude, I got some good news, I got a new job. It's, it's, it's akin to that, but it's so much more than that, and it has to do with whole kind of societal change. So you can imagine Rome thought they were a good country, and when they came in and occupied an area, they would bring good tidings, or good news of Rome uh, instilling structure and order in that place. And so it's like a new kingdom taking place. And that's what the reader would have understood when they heard this. And this good news is related to a person. This person is Jesus, and this person is called the Messiah. And that term is a Jewish term that looked back to the Old Testament uh, where many people who are anticipating this figure, this Messiah, this person who would come, and it's in a lot of apocalyptic literature, think Daniel 7 and other uh, prophetic books that point forward towards God's action in a person. And Messiah simply means anointed one, some who, someone who has come in the name of God to accomplish what God wants to accomplish. And that's what this good news is about, and it happens in the person of Jesus, who is, the next phrase is, is the Son of God, which is quite a dramatic uh, conviction. 
that this person is somehow divine and is coming to accomplish God's will in one, but is himself a divine. So that's a pretty dramatic entrance to this book and a little confusing because we already know the end that this God dies. And next, uh, in verse 4, what happens next is we see this man named John the Baptist come on the scene. And you start to see right off the bat what Mark is talking about, what this book is going to be about, one of the big themes of this book. And it says in verse 4, and also John the Baptist appeared where? He appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance and what? The forgiveness of sins. Now, people, maybe we've grown up in the church and those those terms are pretty defined for us because of our 21st century experience of what the forgiveness of sins. Like, maybe if I just say forgiveness of things, sins, what conjures up in your mind is maybe a picture of the cross or like a Catholic sort of setting when someone's absolving sins, a confessional booth or something like that. But obviously that was not in the minds of people, first of all, who are experiencing John's ministry, who is calling for the forgiveness of sins. And it's important for us as readers to understand that the... That the the Hebrew people in Jesus' time, the phrase forgiveness of sins, and particularly the understanding of John not being in Jerusalem but being in the wilderness, was kind of like acting out the exile story. Now, the exile story was this really important story in the Israelites' history where they were displaced, and they, uh, were, their city was destroyed, their temple was destroyed, and there's this really dramatic, meaningful moment for the Jews where God's presence actually leaves the temple which is probably the most heartbreaking part of exile for the people of God. And they're cast out into the wilderness, into this place called Babylon, and it's not something that they're unfamiliar with because way earlier in their past they had a wilderness experience before they found the promised land. So this idea of wilderness is this idea of confusion, uh, but in the midst of that confusion, God makes something new. And usually what happens in the midst of that wilderness experience is there's this experience of the forgiveness of sins that brings people back into wholeness. So uh, later in Nehemiah, he rebuilds the temple and God's presence, there's this dramatic uh, celebratory experience where God's presence moves back into the temple and people again have a way to reunite with God again, a way to enter into God's presence. And so in some ways, but with, with uh, John, if you'll follow, follow me here, he's proclaiming this new story of experiencing God's presence and experiencing forgiveness. And then, of course, Jesus comes on the scene. And the next few chapters, chapter 2 through uh, chapter 10, really, really chapter 8 in some sense, are all of these crazy stories of Jesus performing miracles and Jesus proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, or uh, the kingdom of heaven, it says in some gospels. And we've talked about that in the past few weeks, but a hallmark of his proclamation is the forgiveness of sins, which means in some sense, in, in that immediate sense of forgiving of people's sins, but also this tiding, this good news of God's presence being experienced in a different way. Just one quick story to point out, and that may be familiar to you. In chapter 2, there's this experience of these buddies who drag this guy to this house that Jesus is at, and they, they, they drill a hole in the roof. Have you guys heard this story? 
there's this dramatic moment where Jesus is back in Capernaum, his hometown, and he's got a packed crowd in this house. Those of you who were at the Bubna's house last week, I heard it was kind of packed. It was even more than that, right? The, the people were wall to wall, and these people thought it would be brilliant to cut a hole in the top of this roof and lower this guy down, which in and of itself is amazing. And there's a healing that occurs in the midst of that. But there's something that also can be missed. There's a group of Pharisees there that are, are characters in the story, and they're kind of watching Jesus. And they're saying, uh, now you need to understand that the Pharisees in some sense represent the religious structure of the time. They've got the corner on how to experience God's presence. They've got a corner about how to do church, if you will, in our, our, our modern day. They've got a corner on uh, how to lead people into the presence of God. And they're the ones who manage the temple. They're the ones who manage the system that the Israelites have set up to experience forgiveness of God and to experience God's presence in prayer. And in the midst of this story, in verse 10 in chapter 2, Jesus goes out of his way to address this murmuring happening in the background, and he speaks directly to the Pharisees, these concerned religious people. And he says, But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he he forgives that man's sins. And then it says their response is that this is blasphemous. They begin right there to plot against Jesus' demise. It's like the beginning of the end for Jesus, that phrase when he says it to the Pharisees. And you're like, man, what's the big deal? Like, Jesus wants to just forgive some people? Like, Pharisees, why are you so mad about this? And it's because their whole power structure, their whole existence their whole understanding of how to relate with God was associated with the temple, was associated with the things that they were involved in. And they had a whole system for doing the right thing and saying the right thing to receive forgiveness from God and enter into the presence of God or get close to the presence of God because people couldn't even do that. They had to uh, give a sacrifice or plead with a, a, a priest to say something when they were close to the presence of God. And here Jesus was saying, the Son of Man, me, I have authority to forgive sins. Where? Nowhere close to the temple. In someone's house. This is getting crazy if you're an Israelite. <laughs> and most people think Jesus is crazy in this time. So I want to skip ahead to this dramatic story in Mark 11. This is where it all sorts of co comes to a head, and this is where I think we really see the lens in which God wants us to see ourselves in the world. This is what he's trying to communicate. So this is a long story. Let me just give you the, the, the beginning, uh, and, and, and I'll walk you through it, and we'll pause at different moments to read. So Steve, do your best to follow along. I'm sorry I'm whipping through things here. But this is a story. Uh, we take a turn in the Gospels here. So chapters 8 and 10 are mostly Jesus with his disciples, and they have these weird dialogues where Jesus is like, who do you think that I am? And the Jesus' Jesus's disciples sort of think they know who he is. He's like, you're the king, you're the Messiah, you're going to bring in this new reign, this new kingdom, and we're going to be like secondhand men, and it's going to be great. And Jesus is going to be like, nope, you got it wrong. He's like, actually, it's not going to be like that. My kingdom, uh, my leadership will be built on service. I will give my life. And everybody's like scratching their heads. We're like, what, but where, where do we get the money from? <laughs> you know, like, but, you know, like, when do we make swords? You know, and they're totally not getting it because Jesus' kingdom is different. And then Mark takes a dramatic shift in, uh, in chapter 11. And the dramatic shift physically where Jesus is is he moves into Jerusalem. 
the epicenter of where this faith is, the epicenter of where people experience God's presence, Jerusalem. And first he comes as a king. There's this dramatic entrance where they throw down palms. He's riding a donkey. People don't really get that, but they're like, yeah, this guy's great. So his ratings are super high on TV. Like, people are super into him. And then there's this really peculiar story that I want to share with you. Uh, And it actually starts with Jesus outside of the city again. So he must have come outside after that triumphant entry with his disciples, and he's making his way back to Jerusalem. And as he's making his way back to Jerusalem, he stops by this fig tree. And they're like, dude, Jesus, what do you got against fig trees? Because he reaches into the fig tree and he can't find fruit. And his disciples are like, oh, Jesus, they're not in season, so you're not going to find fruit in there. But he's trying to make a broader point. And he reaches in and, he's, and he basically says, this tree is no longer fruitful. And then he curses the tree and tells it to, to wither because its purpose has run dry. And you're like, man, <laughs> like, what are you doing? That tree was just going about its day, thinking about fruit next season, and you got to go and curse it? What's the big deal? And Jesus is trying to make a broader point here. Fig tree is representative of the fruit that the, the people of Israel can bear, the fruit that they're supposed to be in the world. Originally, God uh, promised to Abraham, he said, I will bless you to be a blessing to the world. And that blessing, a, 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 a metaphor for that blessing, a symbol of that blessing throughout Israelite history is the fig tree. So Jesus is saying, you're not being a blessing anymore in some sense. And then this is what happened next. He charges right into the center of how people experience God in that time to the temple. And that's the story I want to read here. Reaching Jerusalem, we're in, we're in verse 15. Reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned tables of money changers and benches of those selling doves. I don't know why the dove sellers just got, just got benches, but that, that's a part of the story. And would not allow anyone to carry uh, merchandise through the temple courts. So this is pretty dramatic. Here's this dude who's flying high in the ratings, comes in and starts physically disrupting the temple, turning things over. And then this is the word that he has for them. He says, and he taught them, which means he probably had little more than just this phrase. He probably taught a sermon or something like that. And he said, it is, is it not written? And this is a quote from Jeremiah. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. Yeah, oof is right. <laughs> like here Jesus comes into the epicenter of how people connect with God, and he starts flipping over tables, and he, in this dramatic fashion is giving this strong rebu- rebuke, and his rebuke is focused on this should be a place of prayer for all nations, should be a place where people can readily access God's presence. And not just for the Jewish faith who know all the ins and outs, not just for the religious insiders, not just for the wealthy who can buy the good sacrifices, but for all nations. And here you are, have kept our uh, story of following God to this centralized place. And this story, this blessing, as he gave to Abraham, is supposed to be for all nations. And here it is, and there's vendors, there's people who are exploiting people. The poor can't fully access this way of connecting with God. And he just, out of his rage in some sense, starts flipping the tables and saying, God is doing a new thing. 
Then it says the chief priests and the teachers of the law, those who got the most from being a part of the temple, began to look for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole, because, uh, the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. It's a quite dramatic moment. This is the beginning of the end for him again. And then it says he goes out of the city and he passes that fig tree and it's completely dead. And his disciples are like, whoa, the fig tree is dead. That's amazing. And I'm sure Jesus was like, dude, you've seen me do crazy stuff than that. Like, why are you surprised the fig tree is dead? But he just is driving home the point. The fig tree is the temple. The fig tree is this system of being in a relationship with God that has been constructed, that is no longer purposeful, no longer meaningful. And then this is what he says to his disciples. These first four words, I think, are so crucial. Have faith in God. The implication is, don't have faith in the temple. Have faith in God. Access God. And then he says these things that are still head scratchers today for all of us. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what he, uh, they say will happen, it will be done for them. I've done it once. It's amazing. Throwing mountains. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. But it's just, this is amazing that Jesus is saying this stuff. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe, and you will receive it. And it will be yours. And then he says this. On this theme, on this movement that's about the forgiveness of sins, he says, when you stand and pray, when you're trying to connect with God, when you're connecting with God through prayer, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that you and your, you, that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. You know, some of this stuff just flies right overhead, but I think I want you to understand how radical of a perception of a new way of relating with God this is. People had to come to a temple. They had to pay things to get sacrifices. People come to God primarily because they have desires in their hearts to see things come true in the world and because they're burdened with sin and they don't know where else to come but to come to God's presence. And they look and seek for forgiveness. And Jesus is confronting the way in which people receive those things from God. And he said, the system that you've set up for people to to, to experience the desires of their heart in relationship with God and to receive forgiveness are done. They're no longer valid. And it's so amazing because he empowers people in prayer. And prayer is this just amazing communication with God. It, he's, the implication here is that you can directly speak with God and bring your desires of your heart to him. And he loves you so much that he wants to refine those desires and help you see them come true. And not only that, the burdens you have in your life, there's no process. There's no go-between. You talk with God and you can receive forgiveness. This is radical. Jesus disrupts the way people access the presence of God and experience forgiveness. Jesus is launching in the book of Mark a way to understand what he wants us to see and how he sees the world and what he's doing is he's establishing this radical faith in God's power based on the practice of radical forgiveness. Now, I got to be honest, initially when I, when I read this verse on forgiveness, I'm like, what's the deal about having to forgive others to receive God's forgiveness? 
And I think in some sense that's a bit of a distraction because it's in some sense going back to a transactional understanding of forgiveness. So at this point in the sermon, you're like, well, sweet Bible teaching, but what does this actually mean in my life? So let me show you. This is my, my helpful understanding of what he's trying to communicate about forgiveness here. So this is my best attempt at a three-section Venn diagram. Okay for everybody? Good? Circles enough? I'm going to put God up here and put me here and put others here. This whole bit about forgiving others so that you can experience the forgiveness of God is a communication that forgiveness is not transactional, it's transformative. These are always the three people in the story of our forgiveness. There's always our relationship with God. There's a relationship with me. But God created us as relational beings. God created us to be in relationship with him and others, and there's always a messy middle. There's always a space where we've wronged someone else or have experienced pain from someone else. And I think part of what Jesus was confronting about this system is that it's not just an experience of forgiveness with God. Forgiveness is a transformational experience that will change the world. That's how he saw it. He invited all of us, and here's how I think he wants us to see the world and ourselves. He invites all of us to live forgiven. That means that any barrier that exists in any of these relationships, he wants to remove it. Now, another thing I love about that story is the the table turning. So now, you're wondering why I brought a table up here. Just think about this. Here's the deal. We may be easy to look back at the Israelites and say, man, look at all those systems they created that kept them from relationship with God. But let's be honest. There are so many little systems that we build in our lives that keep us from the presence of God. This problem that Jesus was confronting was not just isolated to the first century. This is a human problem that we start to think that there's things that can separate, separate us from the forgiveness of God and his presence, and we start to build those up in our lives. So whatever it is for you, it's probably not donut boxes, but these are what I'm using for an analogy. You're like, um, I'm not quite sure I can fully experience the forgiveness of God. He doesn't completely understand the wrongs I've done or something like that. That person really, really hurt me, and there's nothing I can do to reconcile that relationship. Or, um, you know, it's just simpler for me to not talk about the brokenness in my life in relationship with God because, to me, I feel like if I enter that conversation, he would just be super disappointed in me. So it's just easier for me to keep that between me and God and let it be not the elephant in the room but the donut box in the room. All of these things compound into all the stuff that just becomes a barrier in relationship with God. We're the church that's all about relationship around the table. But this is how our table in relationship with God often looks. There's things that we're putting between us and God from truly experiencing this radical forgiveness. And Jesus' turning of the tables literally is like this. Couldn't wait for that. That was awesome. (laughs) Do you see this? This is what Jesus longs for us to experience in relationship with God. He wants us to deeply understand that there is nothing any longer, no system we can construct that can keep us from relationship with God. 
And when we experience this from God, we can fully experience this forgiveness with other people. So there may be some stuff on your table today. Maybe you're sitting here thinking about this, like there's little patterns that I come up with in my life that keep me from experiencing God's forgiveness. I didn't really have a plan for not holding my notes after I threw the table down. I just want to share with you what this looks like for me personally. In my relationship with God, I uh, barriers to living forgiven in my life. I still am afraid that God's disappointment in me is more um, than his forgiveness. And it makes me avoid the mistakes I've actually made and just shove them down in a way. I'd rather operate under the illusion that I can win God's approval and love through what I do instead of accepting what he has already done for me. Brennan Manning, who wrote this book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, gives us this advice or word. He says, genuine self-acceptance is not derived from the power of positive thinking, mind games, or pop psychology. It is an act of faith in God's, or the, the God of grace. It's an act in faith of God, not of our own doing. What does this mean for the way that I see myself? Sometimes I just go on believing and have become comfortable believing that I'm just unforgivable. I'd rather go on avoiding my brokenness than believe that God has forgiven me because for some reason I get comfortable with that. Maya Angelou said this that I think so resonates with this conversation. It's one of the greatest gifts you can give yourself to forgive. Forgive everybody. With others, I think we'd rather keep people at an arm's length with systems and structures that we construct to keep others out of our lives because there's unresolved forgiveness. You all know that this can tear families and marriages apart. And it's important to give a caveat about for forgiveness here. Forgiveness does not mean becoming a doormat for other people to step on. Forgiveness does not mean that we're forgetting everything and just saying, la, 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 nothing ever happened. That's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness does not mean that the offender doesn't have to face some level of consequences in their own life for the actions that they've taken. It doesn't mean any of those things. But what it does mean is that God can give us the potential to restore, first of all, with him and with others. But it's not passive, it's an active uh, the Bible often speaks about it as a forgiveness of debts. And what does this look like for us? What does it look like for us as a community to live forgiven? Now, with Black History Month here and MLK uh, Day coming a few weeks ago, I always try to return and read Martin Luther King. Not only was he an amazing person, an activist, but he was an amazing theologian. And I think in part he was an amazing theologian because of the life he lived, not just the thoughts that he put together. And there's a couple quotes that I think are really meaningful for us, and these come from uh, a couple of his writings, but one I found uh, this past few weeks was an essay called The Meaning of Forgiveness. And it's so amazing, uh, Martin Luther King's perspective of forgiveness. He says, forgiveness is a Christian weapon for social redemption. I think that's how Jesus saw it, too. The disciples wanted him to make swords, and he said, no, we're going to forgive everyone. We go out 
with the spirit of forgiveness, heal hearts, right the wrongs, and change society with forgiveness. He also said we must develop and maintain the capacity to forgive. He who do, uh, is devoid of the power to forgive is the devoid of the power to love. What does this maybe mean for North City as a church? Uh, last week at the retreat, and some of you who were at the, the house at Daniel's house uh, were invited into a process of just praying for God's vision for 2020. And one element of that was praying over the Lord's Prayer uh, for what it means to receive his forgiveness. And I would say in terms of what we're talking about today, what it means for our church to experience the joy of living forgiven. And you said things like, uh, experiencing forgiveness for us means freedom from deep wounds. Freedoms from wounds that you've carried maybe for your whole life to experience a new level of forgiveness. Forgiveness for us, living forgiven, joining this movement of Jesus, is, means that we are quick to ask for forgiveness that the church, uh, for mistakes that the church has made. You said this. Freedom from, for our neighbors through the experience of forgiveness as well. You know, I said we'd end with the end of the story. There's this dramatic scene in the Gospels as we read at the beginning that immediately after Jesus' death, the veil, which is what covered the Ark of the Covenant in the temple, which was the representation of God's presence, was torn. Many accounts say the temple was destroyed, uh, like, was severely damaged right after Jesus' crucifixion. In some ways, Jesus' cross is the final stamp to say this system of relating with God where Jesus stays behind a veil or where God's presence stays behind a veil is over in my death. I've done everything necessary for you to experience the presence of God. And if in the Old Testament, forgiveness of sins is akin to God's presence returning to the life of the people, Jesus has accomplished that for us. Jesus has accomplished that for you. And no matter the things that you're holding, uh, the systems you've constructed that separate you from God or separate you in your mind, what you need to hear this morning is that the veil is gone, that God is right here, and you can experience forgiveness. And if there's unforgiveness that you're holding in your life towards someone else, when you don't have the strength to do that, God can give you the strength to offer forgiveness to that other person. I'm going to invite the band to come up. I'm going to pray, um, and what I want to invite you to do is just to consider this. Consider how there might be things in relationships with, your, with God, things that you're thinking about yourself, things in relationship with others where uh, you've set up a barrier to you experiencing the life of living forgiven. And we have two songs until communion, which is this beautiful practice of remembering the forgiveness that's available to us in God. Take this time to bring those people to your attention and consider in your heart if there's some action you need to take. Uh, one of the most meaningful parts or episodes in my life was someone who's going through the AA journey called me and asked me for forgiveness for something I didn't even know that he did to me. Forgiveness can be a powerful thing in your life. Maybe God is prompting to you uh, to call someone who would be weird to call, but to offer that forgiveness. Maybe there's a conversation you need to happen, uh, that needs to happen in your family. What are the deep wounds of unforgiveness you are harboring? What parts of you are you hiding or holding back from God and others that you just need to let yourself experience forgiveness in?
What tables are you setting up between you and God, and what barriers are you putting up? Let's pray, and the band will lead us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, help us to see with your eyes. See with your eyes what you accomplished on the cross. God, that you see us, when you look at us, you see Christ. You see someone who took the fall for every mistake we made. God has redeemed us, has made everything, or made possible uh, everything for us to have a relationship with you. God, forgive us for the things that we keep letting come between us and you. And God, in these next few moments, would you help us through your power to tear those things down in our relationship with you and relationship with others. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, this is Pastor Christian Ann of North City Church. Thanks so much for listening to this message today. We hope you feel more empowered to love your neighbors in the way of Jesus. If you have thoughts or questions, we would love to hear from you. You can leave us a voice message on our website, northcitychurchmpls.com backslash sermons. Learn more about the North City community there as well. And you can find us on Facebook and Instagram. A special thanks goes out to Ben Noble for the music on this podcast. If you haven't heard Ben Noble's music yet, check it out at bennoblemusic.com. Let me send you into your day with this blessing. May God give you the eyes to see and the ears to hear all that God is doing in the world around you. And may he give you the courage to respond. Amen.